0: Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today interview series. We feel lucky to be able to talk to so many smart, passionate, and knowledgeable people in healthcare.
1: Now, we're taking our favorite interviews and sharing them with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy perspectives on the world of health IT.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today. We're excited to bring you in another in our series of health IT interviews. And today's guest is Ian Iberge, CEO of NanoVMs. Welcome, Ian.
1: Thanks, John, for uh, having us. Uh, Good to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to learn about an important space in the technology one. And as tech guy on Twitter, I love having these conversations because every day I lose a little bit of my tech guy skill (laughs) as a publisher. It's, uh, you know, I love to at least dip my toe back in the tech side of things. But anyway, before we dive into the technology and things, tell us a little bit about yourself and Nano VMs.
1: Sure. Uh, so, so, I'm the CEO, founder over at uh, Nano VMs, and we work with a uh, unikernel infrastructure, which is kind of a new way of just deploying a uh, server-side Linux software that runs faster and safer than Linux itself. So.
0: Yeah, well, we want to dive into that safety thing. Uh, It's top of minds for healthcare CEOs, CIOs. I think it keeps probably the number one thing that keeps them up at night. But uh, tell people, for those not familiar with kind of this container market, what's been the evolution of the use of containers in healthcare?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, healthcare specifically, um, I, I would say probably the majority of the uh, the container users are more in kind of the startup space, your ground rounds and um your Oscar Health and uh companies of that nature. I don't I don't see a ton of um work being done in actual uh you know, more established like hospitals, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um it, you see some in like the data science realm when they're doing bioinformatics and things of that nature. Um, but 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 in general, I mean, a lot of it's you know. Just the, the the various systems that they're already using, they've been using for a while. Um, and that's not quite changing. Um, but, of course, that's where some of these other startups are coming in and offering their software. So...
0: Yeah, well and I, you know I, I always am a stunned by how many systems that a healthcare organization has, you know, whether it's the latest ERP that they've rolled out or whether it's the latest whatever, uh, you know, where you know they they end up using it, right? Or they or they contract with someone like an Oscar Health or something for for some service. Uh but who who do you see as really the market leaders in this space?
1: uh those specifically using containers um not necessarily
0: not using containers but the options yeah. that are available i think kubernetes is that you know that is that the most popular one
1: well yeah i mean there's uh most most people most shops that are going to be using containers will be using something like kubernetes mm-hmm. um you know it's uh trying to kind of stand up your own container infrastructure is something that a lot of organizations fought you know, a decade battle with and lost. <laughs> so, uh, you know, even Kubernetes, you know, the very first word that comes with that is complexity. Um, so, it's uh, it's it's not really for the, I guess, the fan of heart in terms of you know having to administer it and so forth. And so that's that's probably why you do see some of these um, older organizations leaning on your Oscar Healths and uh, things of that nature. Because they have, you know, they come from that world, they, uh, they excel in that sort of um, software uh, delivery uh, of that, that maybe a uh, traditional healthcare team might not have that core competency of, which is fine. I mean, their core competency is providing healthcare. So,
0: yeah. So why are people moving to this containerized world and you know is, is it about security is it about speed is it about flexibility i mean what what are some of the advantages of of kind of you know, obviously, you know, in the healthcare world, we know about the monolith EHR, if you will, right. Right? that gets rolled out. That's not containerized. You know, what's the evolution that's happening here? Why are people implementing this container-based approach? Yeah, there's, I mean,
1: there's a, there's a couple things going on. One is that um, a lot of the modern software that's been written in the past, say five years, is being distributed as containers so so there's that i mean if if you have software that's written in the past two years i mean you're you're probably deploying it in that um infrastructure uh delivery mechanism but the the other kind of um thing is that you have a very large swath of developers that don't wish to really deal with servers um and so containers have have been this kind of thing that they reach to because they can just take ad hoc software from third parties and kind of roll it together and and deploy it. And they don't really have to deal with, you know, compiling it or um making sure it works on one machine and it, you know, it can transfer it to another machine. Um, so that's that's you know speed of delivery is is one thing that um these organizations look at.
0: Interesting. And will we see EHR vendors? I mean, I certainly, if a new EHR comes along, they probably build it this way. But yeah. Do, is it? Does it take like a full rewrite of the software for them to use something like this? Or? Well,
1: I mean, if you're coming from something like an Epic, <laughs> it's uh, uh, yeah, there, there, there might be some pretty dramatic changes um, going on. Um, you, you know, there's, there's definitely a few very established vendors and, and some of these. Spaces And so to kind of compete against them, I mean, you're, you're going up against a, a pretty large incumbent. Um, sure. But I, I think some of those uh, vendors are starting to catch up too. So it's not, um, you, you know, it's, it's definitely an evolution for them as well. Yeah. I mean, Epic started in what, the mid seventies or late seventies. So
0: 79. Yep. Yeah. So, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. you
0: know, I mean, I think you compare that even against uh, Meditech which is 50 years yeah. old, although they created expanse within the last 10 years. So it'd be interesting to compare the infrastructure of those, but that's kind of a topic for another day. So, yep. so tell us how, you know, where does nano VMs fit into this whole world? Like what's the difference between it and maybe some other implementations out there?
1: So, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess the easiest thing to distinguish is, um, we don't do containers. Um, we're, we're kind of beyond that. Um, uh, personally, our company views containers, um, as kind of a, uh, maybe a one step forward, two steps back type of technology, where there were some advancements made in, in terms of software delivery, it enabled developers to, um, you know, maybe uh, speed a little bit faster in their development cycle because they didn't have to do all the standing up of various services, but then they introduced all sorts of different problems, you know, security became a nightmare um, DevOps, you know, it's one, one of the interesting things about containers and Kubernetes is if you look at a, a lot of the marketing that's involved with it. They they talk about oh you don't have to do so much DevOps and you know less DevOps and and the very first thing that a company does when they adopt something like Kubernetes is go out and hire super expensive DevOps professionals. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit misleading in my opinion. Um,
0: it's just different DevOps, is that?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's well, I mean, the, the the whole deal started with the fact that. There's a large percentage of of developers out there that um, they can write these applications, but they can't really manage the applications in production. You know, there's monitoring that's involved, there's deploying that's involved, there's there's a whole set of skills that are involved in managing the software while it's running on a server, and and, and there's a ton of developers that don't have that skill set, and so that's where Kubernetes sizes promise of like dealing with it. So your application crashes, we'll just restart it. You know, this is why we have these replicas. Um, it, we can deal with the high load, we can deal with this. Um, so that's that's where those frameworks kind of come in. Um, but but they aren't, as I mentioned, they induce a lot of um, drawbacks as well, uh, in particular, breaking a lot of security boundaries that existed before. So,
0: yeah. So, Let's let's talk about that because uh, you know we saw the news that the first Windows container malware you know happened. So what are the risks to you know do these containers pose for healthcare?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, before even jumping onto that, that's not that article is actually not true, and it's funny because I think that came from Palo Alto, which is the exact same company that released an article a year ago talking about how Azure containers were completely. Um, you know, uh, broken by design. <laughs> oh,
0: okay.
1: So, so the exact same company uh, is kind of contradicting itself. Um, yeah, they, they had an article like a year ago saying that, you know, if you're using Azure containers, you should just basically stop because they're just broken by design and Microsoft has no inclination to fix them. Hmm. Um, it, you actually have to add on attack on kind of service to, to deal with the inherent issue. At play and and i'll kind of get at the the real problem of containers the real problem of containers is is that um they they all share the same sort of kernel the same sort of um operating system kernel right and that's great if it if it wasn't expanding beyond one server but the whole idea of containers is that they're meant to expand beyond many servers you know you, if you have a cluster you know, but by definition, you're going to have many different servers with these applications writing on them.
0: For reliability.
1: Yeah. And that completely breaks like these core operating system security constructs that we have um, compared to say a normal Linux virtual machine. You spin it up in Amazon or wherever. You know, if I break into that machine, I might have access to that machine, but I don't immediately have access to all the other machines in your infrastructure. That's not the same thing with a, a Kubernetes, you know, I break into one pod, your entire things, it's completely host. <laughs> so that's that's the really big large issue with with container infrastructure, and and that's you know why there's contrarians like us where we just you know we see it as a fad that will eventually just kind of die out because it's just not um, it's inherently broken.
0: So. so where will it head? Because, I, you know, I mean, there's a reason why Kubernetes is so popular and mentioned so much. I think it is the flexibility, the scalability, yeah. right? Uh, you know, there's something about trying to solve the DevOps problem, right? Right. So where do you see it headed if, it, if it's going to die off?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of different directions that it can go. Um, but it's not the first time that stuff like this has kind of had a huge hype cycle and then kind of plateaued um, you know, Kubernetes is really just an extension of a lot of the platform as a service offerings that, you know, had a big deal, and then kind of pivoted and um, uh, died out. So like pivotal from cloud foundry, for instance, that was a really big deal. And, you know, there's definitely, especially on the Northeast coast, there's still like a lot of pivotal um, shops out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's basically dead. <laughs> OpenStack, uh, which is the clearest kind of um, correlation, even though it's kind of at the infrastructure layer, it's not dead. I mean, there's a lot of telecoms, for instance, that use OpenStack and a lot of many other organizations, but that same sort of height kind of went up and then dropped sharply. And, and so now there's not so many organizations using that. You, you know, at the, at, at the end of the day, there's plenty of other stacks besides Kubernetes too. If you look at HashiCorp, for instance, um, you know, HashiCorp is a multi-billion dollar company um, that is the clearest example of a non-Kubernetes container-based infrastructure. Uh, and it's it's extremely popular amongst um, many organizations. Um, so there's there's it's not uh, I don't see it as a binary choice. It's not if or or, it's um, you know, there's there's many different options. And then you know, there's as as we mentioned, there's still a plenty of software just sitting on Windows servers too. So it's uh you don't have to use Linux, although obviously people like me are very partial <laughs> to uh to that. So
0: yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the challenge for a healthcare organization. Many times they don't have a choice, right? You know, whatever software they choose is on right. Linux or is on Windows, you know, it's on one or the other, and so they have to implement it. And, you know, I'm just kind of going back to this security risk uh, element. You know, I look at it and say, well, a healthcare organization's security risk assessment should take this into account. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what can be really done to mitigate the risk of, of these types of implementations uh, being compromised or, or should they move away from them? Or what's your suggestion as far as making sure that the organization's at the least risk possible?
1: Yeah. You you know, I, I really feel for the healthcare organization because as, as, as again, I'll, I'll state, like, it's not necessarily their core competency to be writing the software and managing it. Um, They need to use it just for, you know, the various reasons, but really it's, you know, responding to emergencies and dealing with the operations and all this other stuff. And I mean, You know, containers present lots of different security challenges. You have the crypto jacking where where some attacker will just inject (laughs) an illicit crypto miner into some third-party dependency. It lands inside the infrastructure and all of a sudden your resources are just being taxed by illicit crypto mining. It's a very popular attack now. Uh, You have all the ransomware where it's just non-stop nightmare. (laughs) um, and, And honestly, a lot of that ransomware, that doesn't even affect um, a lot of the, the Linux and container based systems, although there, there are variants that do, um, most of it's kind of residing on Windows, you know SMB shares and things of that nature. Um, so you know that's its own challenge right there. Um, it, you know software in general just has a lot <laughs> a lot of challenges, and it's uh, I think one thing is that the world just needs to wake up that it's not 1995 anymore. You know it's 2021. Um, every single company out there consumes not just a little bit of software, but just massive amounts of software and the problem's only escalating. And so, so I think, you you know, the underlying infrastructure needs to be dealt with. We can't have these tack on solutions where it's like, Oh yeah, well, we have the endpoint scanning and we have this, you know, uh, software supply chain, um, you know, scanning. And I, most of the security solutions out there focus, on scanning for hack systems or scanning for systems that are going to be hacked which to me is a very defeatist attitude <laughs> you know, in terms of dealing with the issue it, you really have to figure out like why the attacker is getting onto the system in the first place and then you know from from there kind of walk back and figure out okay how, how do we how do we deal with this issue and that, that's where you know the technology unicorns like we we work with kind of comes into play where, you know, if if an attacker is breaking into your server, they don't really care what software you have there. You know, they find a bug to a piece of software, they find an exploit, they break in. That's just the entryway to the server. It's like breaking a window in a house or kicking in the front door. It's just the entry point. Once they're inside your house, they want to steal your guns and your jewels and your money and your flat screen TV. I mean, that's why they're there breaking in. And it's the exact same mentality on the server side. They want to run their software. And so that could be something like dumping the database, which is every single data breach out there. <laughs> you know? uh, that, that, that could be running the crypto miner, but this always entails running on their software. And so you know from a unikernel point of view, what we say is like, hey, why don't we just run one piece of software per virtual machine? Because we know it's already virtualized anyways. Um, there's no need to have another general purpose operating system on top where it's inherently built to run many different programs by many different users. And uh, so that's, that's kind of a philosophy that, that we espouse. But...
0: And is that what you see as the future of, of all of this is really, you know, doing the one-to-one and, and is the goal of that to really reduce the risk associated with, uh, you know, from security perspective or, or are there management benefits as well? Is that where you're headed?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess there's two thoughts here. I'll, I'll touch on the management side after, but, you know, if, if we look at security, um, you have to realize that the server side systems that we deploy to, and I'm really talking about Linux because we're talking about containers. Yep. Um, you know, Linux is about 30 years old now. So it came out in 91. Linus, when he wrote it, was probably working on a 286. That was a real box, like a real machine, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and, and so the design characteristics of having multiple users, multiple processes, no virtualization whatsoever, um, you know, that, that, those were just mandatory because that's what we had at the time. Um, and this was the exact same design as Unix, which is now 50 years old, came out in 1969, it was built to work on machines like the, like the PDP-7, PDP-11. Those machines took up an entire wall. They cost a half a million dollars. There's reasons why these operating systems had this concept of running multiple programs by multiple users, because that's, that's what we had to do back then. Right. <laughs> the machines were just too expensive not to. Um, now, if we go back to Linus and Linux in 91, keep in mind that this was 10 years before VMware came out. So VMware was, you know, the first company that really commercialized virtualization. We had, we had the concept in computer science for a while, but nobody had like really commercialized it. And I, I think it was also a function of market economics. We just didn't have machines that could really support it at the time either. Because, you know, we didn't have good SP machines until like 2001. Um, and SMB is really kind of a requirement for virtualization, but now... Today, I can go to Google Cloud and spin up a 384 thread instance on Google, it, like in seconds, um, which is a, a beast of a machine. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it, there's, there's a couple market functions that I think that allowed us to actually start to do this. And, and, and by the way, you know, keep in mind that even though VMware was out in 2000, it was still five years before that small company in Seattle called Amazon released DC 2 which is what we call the public cloud. And the cloud is really just an API to virtualization, um, yep. really nothing more that than that. So, yeah. you know, it was VMware and Amazon are really kind of the two companies that set the stage for allowing us to even think about doing this. Um, it, it wouldn't make sense without, without those two things. Uh,
0: and what are the management benefits then of, you know, and where do you see it all kind of progressing? Yeah, you know, are right. I, I think if you, if I look back, you know, my first computer was a 286. So it's fun that you mentioned that, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we're, we're almost spoiled with, with so many riches today. Right.
1: Yeah. As far as
0: options that are available, uh, you know, that it's almost overwhelming to know what's the right direction.
1: Yeah, so the management question is really interesting. Um, and to give you some context, I'm, I'm here in the Bay Area. So um, let's say you're an engineer that works over at Uber or Airbnb or name any of your favorite unicorn tech companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, those companies are so large and they employ so many software engineers that they don't have like one database. They don't have one web server. They have thousands of web servers thousands of databases. I mean, there's, there's graphics. You can go look online where um, they show you this cobweb constellation of little dots and there's just like thousands of them. And they're like, yeah, these are all the different applications that we run in in our one company. And what you have to realize is they call them applications, but they still reside on individual operating systems. And so, you know, a company like Lyft signed a $300 million deal with Amazon for, I think it was over a five-year period. Um, so $300 million they've committed to spend. And uh, y- y- you just think about the mess of operating systems that they have to control. Because again, it's not just like one operating system, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And that's that's a real cost. Um, you know, here in the Bay Area, a good DevOps engineer, SRE, whatever you want to call them, some of them can't code at all. You know, they just manage systems. They can make 200K a year. Um, and so uh, that's that starts, you know, eating up um, a lot of valuable time. And I think the management issue is going to get worse and worse and worse because we're, we keep on adopting more and more software. Um, you know, Google is famous for, they wrote a paper, then they wrote another paper, and finally, this paper turns into a book. Right. And it was—it basically said that um, the data center is a warehouse computer, which is a pretty apt metaphor of like where we're going, I think. Um, and you know, the, the problem though is if if the data center is a warehouse-sized computer, then the cloud is the operating system. Yet we're still managing thousands of different operating system installs. Um, for our software. And so what what the Unikernel does, if you're deploying to the cloud, is that we deploy each application as its own VM, and there effectively is no kind of user land operating system. It's when you spin it up on AWS, the application starts, and and that's the only thing that's running. There's no Linux inside. There's nothing to manage. It's it's either working or it's not. It's running or it's not. Um, And so a lot of that management and configuration and deploying issues and monitoring issues. And a lot of that stuff just gets thrown out the window because it's just not present anymore. And I think, I think that's the direction that we're going. And you know, things like Kubernetes and containers have kind of been that one step forward with it, but we, we really needed to rethink it completely in order to kind of push it down the road. Because like, like if you deployed to the cloud today, Google or Amazon, you know, you're not just deploying your server, your Linux server, on top of there. You're actually sitting on another Linux server, at least one, <laughs> maybe more. Um, so, so there's like two layers there, and we just we just don't need that second layer of abstraction anymore. Not if we know it's virtualized.
0: Interesting. Well, I think a lot of healthcare uh, CIOs and health IT leaders will will re- really relate with what you just described, as far as the number of applications we have to host, the complexity we have to host and and, you know, and the need to simplify that, right? Uh, so that's a really great message. And I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share these insights and perspectives. And thanks everyone for watching. If you want to find more great healthcare IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com. Thanks, Ian.
1: For sure. Thanks.